Vine family, it's uh, good to be with you again this morning. Campbell's, it's so great that you guys are, are with us. Um, and I hope that just as you heard some of their story, that me encourages you to pray for them regularly. Uh, it's a spiritual battle, and so you can join them in it by praying for them regularly. And maybe even God might put on the hearts of some of you to consider uh, going on missions, whether it's to North Africa or someplace else. We, we want to see people raised up and going out, whether it's to church plants here or church plants around the globe. That's really our prayer, so that God would be, be honored and glorified. Well, we're going to wrap up Second Peter this morning. And so if you want to turn to uh, the book of Second Peter, it's towards the back of the Bible, just before Jude and first, the first John, second John, third John, and Revelation. And we're going to be finishing off chapter three. And remember, Second uh, Peter's been this letter that uh, Peter, uh, an eyewitness and follower of Jesus, has been writing to churches towards the end of his life. And he wants to encourage them to stay strong, to, to be faithful in the midst of false teaching that could shipwreck them and cause them to not honor God in their lives. And as he finishes up his last letter to them, he's going to talk about the end, the end of all things. And that's because the end has a certain way of of clarifying things, of, of bringing a clarity to what life is all about. You see that, actually, in a lot of movies, right? I'm, I'm sure you've probably watched some movie where the basic plot is the world's about to end, and all the characters are wrestling with, what do you do? And some characters just give up. They're like, it's over. They just give in to despair and apathy and just give up on life. Other characters are like, well, there's only a little bit of time left. Let's just go after everything that's pleasurable. Because who cares what the consequences are? It's all just going to end. But a lot of times there's usually a main character that, that that ending of the world brings into sharp focus what they want their last days to be about. And Peter wants to bring that sharp focus to his readers and God through Peter to us today. This, this focus of if the end of the world was coming, what would your life be about? Because the end has this way of getting rid of all the, the conventions we're normally stuck in and the political correctness and all the things that normally box us in to get down to the nub of what is most important. And Peter wants to say, you don't respond with despair. You don't respond with just going after whatever you want. There's actually a way of living that pleases God. And that's the best way to live in light of the end. And if you're going to live that path, which is a difficult path to walk, you're going to need to have your eyes forward to what's about to come and firmly rooted and grounded in the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at, at this morning is, is two, those two keys to have eyes that are forward and feet that are grounded in the gospel as we seek to live for God in light of the end. So let me pray and then we'll jump into our passage. Father, I thank you this morning that we can gather together as one body. And I pray that as you speak through your word, it would be your words that are spoken. And that you would give us ears to listen. To hear your calling out to us. That we might respond rightly and find life instead of death. So be with us now. Amen. Let me read 2 Peter. I'm going to pick up actually from verse 10, just the last verse of last time, just to give us the context. So I'm just going to read. We're reading two parts this morning, so verses 10 to 13 to start, chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So first, if we're going to live for God in light of the end, we need to have our eyes looking forward. If you're, if you're going to live right with the end in mind, you've you got to know what the end is. And Zach talked a bit about this last week, this, this day of the Lord, right? It's, it's the day when God promised to come back and he would judge all things. He would bring judgment and justice. It's the picture of a king who's been away maybe on campaign. And while he was gone, a rebel government took over. But now he's come back. And he's going to rid the rebel evil government, sit on his throne, and bring judgment to bear on all who have been there while he's been gone. You, you see that, that language right in verse 10 of that's the fact that the, everything will be burned up and that the works that are done on earth will be exposed. It's going to come to judgment. And this is really an Old Testament imagery. And Zach mentioned one of them from Malachi. But I want to read to us from the book of Zephaniah. Just again, this, this Old Testament imagery of what the day of the Lord is going to be like. So listen to this from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring distress on mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord... Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Strong words, right? Judgment coming, burning, wrath, distress. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine doesn't quite feel right, right? You know, you're like, that's strong language, and we should feel that. There is judgment coming, and, and that's worrisome because we often have been sinners against God. But thankfully, this isn't the only part of the day of the Lord. It's half the picture. If this was the only half we had, then we might as well give up. Apathy should rule us. Despair should set in. But thankfully, Peter says that no, it's not just this. That even though the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, in verse 12, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, he says in verse 13, but according to his, that is God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's saying judgment isn't just the end of the story. There's something on the other side of judgment. 
It's all things being made right, a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness, only things that are good and true and right dwell. See, judgment can be both good and bad. Depends, right? If the king comes back to find that slave masters have been ruling while he's gone, judgment is very bad for those slave masters. But it is freedom and good news for the slave. Justice is good when you're the oppressed. When things have been broken and things are made right, we love justice and judgment. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, yes, it's a day of judgment. Oh, but there's something good coming out of this. After all, the the imagery he's been using of this day of judgment is the flood earlier in the chapter. If you read the flood back in Genesis, I mean, it brings huge destruction, but it doesn't end the whole world. It washes it clean, purifies it, and then makes it new again. Makes it good again for Noah and his family. And Peter is saying, it's going to be just like that, but this time with fire. Now, I don't know if you've ever driven past an area that's experienced a huge forest fire. Maybe it's a couple years later. And the place, on one hand, is desolate. You can see the evidence of that, that burning destruction. But usually what you also see is new life. That there are new plants, new trees growing up. In fact, there are some things that only grow after the fire has been through. That the very fire that brings destruction also brings about new life. And Peter's saying, that's the whole picture of the day of the Lord. Yes, there's fire. Yes, there's judgment. But on the other side of that is a new heavens and a new earth. This world will not be fully destroyed. It will be restored and redeemed. The Apostle Paul echoes this in in Romans 8 when he says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, broken, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The very creation is waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be restored, waiting to be made right. So don't think that the future hope of the Christian is floating in some cloudy world, just immaterial spiritual beings with somehow immaterial harps that we're playing with white robes. That's not the vision that the Bible wants for us. It wants us to see that the vision of the new heavens and new earth is the Garden of Eden. Come back again. It's this world that was broken, made whole. It's a world in which only righteousness dwells. A world in which there's no more natural disasters, no more sickness, no more death, No more sorrows, no more sin. Whereas Tolkien would put it, everything sad comes untrue. That's what's on the other side of the fire of the day of the Lord. Restoration. That is what we get to look forward to, says Peter. So then he asks a great question in verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be? If this is what's coming, what sort of people ought you to be now? He says it. Live lives of holiness and godliness. You live now a life that's set apart like God is. You live now a godly life, a life that pleases God. You live now a life of righteousness because that's the kind of life that's going to fit and make sense in the world to come. Right? That's, that's what we're aiming for. So start living now what we're moving 
towards. So if what's coming is a judgment, a purifying, but then on the other side, restoration, what is worth living for? Is it at the end, when everything is judged and weighed, will it be worth it to have made your life goal to advance as far up the corporate ladder as possible at the cost of family, friends, and church involvement? Will that stand on that day and say, yes, this makes it through the fire? Will it be uh, a life that is mostly spent, seemingly, watching Netflix and playing video games? Not that those things are inherently bad, but to the cost of not being involved in the things that matter. Will you get to the end and say, that was worth it? That passes the test. What will pass? Because the thing is, it's not that we don't engage. It's not that we have this mentality, the world's going to burn, we just ignore it. No, Peter says you actually are called to engage, but you engage in a way that honors and pleases God now. Right now. In ways that are maybe small and mundane, but that honor God. Like the task of daily parenting kids and teaching them to love Jesus. Mundane, ordinary, sometimes it goes on, you're like, is there ever any progress here? Will my kids ever change? And yet you keep at it, because in light of eternity, that's the kind of work that matters. Or it's the calling to choose to live a life of sexual purity, even if that means you never get married and never get to have sex. You do it because in the light of eternity, it's worth it. That life passes the fires. Or maybe it's a life that says, I want to choose to engage in mercy ministry and in seeking justice in the city. Even if the problems will never go away in my lifetime, I'm going to live a life of mercy and justice because that pleases and honors God. That passes the flames. That's what we want our lives to be about in light of the world to come and the God who dwells there. That's what Peter's inviting us to now in light of the end. And here's why it matters so much. Look at verse 12 with me. We live this life of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You see that? Peter says that actually living a life of holiness and godliness hastens, speeds up the coming day of God. That is crazy. That Peter says that. We get to be part of God's plan to speed up the day of his return. Now, we need to think carefully about this. Because you could, you could go wrong a couple different ways. One thing we know in scripture is Jesus says, no one knows the day or hour except for the Father, and he's marked it down. So on one hand, it's not like God's going to change his mind. The day is fixed. So how can the day be fixed, and yet we can speed it up? Well, something I was thinking about was actually my kids. So whenever we go on vacation, they get pretty excited. And if I tell them, hey, tomorrow we're leaving at lunchtime, they will that moment start packing because they're excited. They're like, awesome. And they like run to their room and like pull out, like I'm going to wear this outfit tomorrow and I got to grab these toys and they just don't want to forget anything. And they're just talking about it and they're excited about it. Now, they will not change the departure time in one hand. Mom and dad have decided we're leaving tomorrow at lunch. But if our kids said, mom and dad say we're leaving, but we're never going to leave, and they didn't pack, they did not choose to be involved, they could actually, in that sense, delay it. 
their active involvement is part of what is required to bring us to the point of departure. I don't think it's a perfect analogy, but I find it helpful to think about that. That God in his sovereignty has actually said our actions are going to be part of the plan he has preordained to get us to that day. That our involvement in living lives of holiness and godliness, in that sense, races us ahead to the day that he has set forth. That is motivating, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when I look around at the brokenness of this world, I am tired of it. I want him to come back and make all things right. And Peter's saying, we can hasten the day. And we see some other evidence of this in Scripture. So uh, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He's saying, look, before I come back, the gospel is going to go to all nations. So you know why we have a heart to see the nations reach? It's for their good, yes, but it's also because we want to see Jesus come back. If you want to be part of that, help the gospel go out to all nations. Or Peter, in, his own, in a sermon in Acts, just a couple months after Jesus has, has been ascended to heaven, says this, Repent, therefore, he's talking to this crowd, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he, that's God, may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. See what Peter's saying? He's saying, look, as you repent, as you come back to God, you are speeding up the day of his return. Because he is slow to judge now because he desires that all of his children will make it home. And so as you repent and trust in Jesus, as you invite other people to repent and trust in Jesus, you are, under God's sovereignty, bringing us one step closer to Christ returning and making all things new. And that is encouraging. There's no room for apathy. There's no room for despair with that vision of the future. Imagine with me you were, you were a soldier in a war and, and things weren't looking super great. But your general had developed a time machine, had gone into the future and come back and said, soon, I, I can't tell you the exact time, but soon the war will end and we will win. You wouldn't sit back and go, oh great, I can stop fighting now. You'd be like, yes, even though it looks bleak, let's press on, let's keep at it because we know the ends. And that's what Peter wants us to have. A right view of the ends. A weighty view, judgment if you stay in sin, but a hopeful view. A hopeful view of all things being made right for those who trust and live for Jesus. So friends, this morning... What is your view of the future? Do you have a view that sees what is to come that motivates you to keep pressing on? I I don't know about you, but I often find myself not thinking about this. You get caught up in in the busyness of life, the humdrum, and, and I can struggle with discouragement often, did this week, and it's because I'm not looking far enough ahead. I'm only looking to next week's problems and next month, and I'm not looking all the way to the end of the story where everything is made right. 
And if that really is the end, does your life reflect a life that is lived to be a kind of person that fits with that new world? Does the way you go about your time and your use of talents and your finances, is all of that funneled towards a life that's lived that honors God in light of his return? Maybe it might be a good question this week to sit down with a spouse or a friend and just say, hey, as you look at my life, what are you seeing? Are you seeing a life that fits with the hope of the new heaven, a new earth? Invite the community to speak in your life so that you can have your eyes forward and be the kind of person that follows God because you see the end is good. We want to have our eyes set on the good end in order to follow God now. But we also need some other help because even with your eyes set forward, there are traps along the way that we want to avoid. So we need to be grounded firmly in the gospel. So let's read verses 14 to 18 to see Peter bring in the second key. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, And lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter starts verse 14 right with these words. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting, since your eyes are fixed forward, be diligent to be found by him, blameless, without spot and at peace. And that word diligent in the Greek is the same word as that hastening earlier. It's, it's hasten, be quick, get to it. Get to being found in him spotless and blameless and at peace. But here's, here's one potential trap we have to avoid. We can sometimes think that we can try hard enough to be spotless and blameless. And that's a path that will either lead to pride, thinking you've made it when you haven't, or despair, feeling like you fall short. Because the reality is, spotless, blameless, perfectly at peace life is not something I have, nor that I guess that you have. That's what fits in the new heavens and new earth. So we've got a problem. If all it means is try really hard and you'll make it. But I think actually means something else. Because Peter has written a first letter where he uses these frame phrases, spotless, blameless. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. And in a section where he talks about living a life that honors God, he says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Can you almost hear an echo of Zephaniah in there? Your silver or gold can't buy your way out. Your silver or gold, your good deeds can't buy you spotless, blameless, at peace life. 
but there is something that can buy that for you. It's a lamb. Jesus, who came to earth and actually did leave, live a perfect life, a spotless life, a blameless life, and then offered himself as a sacrifice to die in our place, to take the fire and the judgment so that we could taste of the new heavens and new earth. If you want to be found spotless or blameless, the first step is to run to the spotless and blameless lamb for salvation and rescue and refuge. That's how you're found spotless and blameless. And then, as you're found in him that way, he starts to change you so that you start to live a life that is more blameless, that is more spotless, that is godly and holy, because you don't get left unchanged by that kind of sacrifice. And so you do start to live that kind of life. And I think you see this, this clear emphasis on this running to salvation, also in verse 15, continued, where Peter now says, and, here's another thing, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He says, count this time when God is waiting... Count count God's patience right now as the time of salvation, as the time to run to Jesus and be found in him spotless. Because one day Jesus is coming back and it will not be to save. It will be to judge. But right now, he comes to save. So run to him now. And he says that the Apostle Paul also writes about these matters. He's not the only one talking about this. And yet... Another trap, he says, many people are going to be confused by this. So look at verse 16. He says that there are some things in them, that are, that is Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Thank you for Peter for admitting that. Um, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. He's saying this beautiful gospel message of being found spotless in Jesus and counting God's waiting as salvation is sometimes being misunderstood and twisted by people. And what that leads to is verse 17. He says, if you're not careful, you'll be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. So if you're walking the path that leads all the way home to the new heavens and new earth, you can get knocked off course by these twisted understandings. Now we don't know for sure exactly what these twisted understandings are. We do have some hints in some of Paul's letters of, of major misunderstandings. So for example, in Romans 3.8, Paul says this, Why do not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. You can see it, right? You tell someone, Hey, you are saved by what Jesus did, not what you did. They go, oh great, so I can do whatever I want then. And Paul's like, no! And Peter says, no, that's not right. You don't get it yet. You don't get it. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card to live however you want. It's a trusting in and coming under the, the kingship of Jesus and wanting to love him and follow him. That's what real faith looks like in him. And so it leads you to live for him, not live for yourself. That, that, that's a twisted understanding. Or some people are saying, well, God's slowness to return maybe means he's either not going to judge or he's not too worried about sin because he's not really doing much about it right now. And Paul, again, shows, this shows up in Romans 2.4 where Paul says this, 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's saying God's patience is not a sign that he's okay with you living in sin. His patience is to give you time to repent. It's kind of like if you've, got, you've ever seen this happen with kids and parents where they, they say, I'm going to count to three, and then you have to, or else you're going to get a consequence. And sometimes kids interpret that as, that means I can keep disobeying for one and two, right? So instead of seeing it as like an opportunity to repent and come towards obedience, they go, ooh, I can keep disobeying for two more seconds, right? Like that's, that's how sinful kids are, but we're sinful too. And Peter's saying, look, people are twisting this to say, oh, we can, we, we can keep disobeying for a while. I don't know how many times I've talked to people, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll trust in Jesus towards the end of my life. I just want to live it my way now, and then I'll get the fire insurance right at the end before I go. And they're misusing this. They're twisting this good doctrine. So how do you avoid falling into some of these pits? Well, Peter says it in verse 18. But you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You, you stay on course by planting your roots deep in gospel truth, by growing daily in an understanding of the knowledge of who Jesus is and growing in his undeserved kindness towards you. That's what you do daily, all the time. So as you grow in the gospel and understand all that Jesus did for you and the cost, you don't view grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You understand how him dying for you changes the way you love him and how you live for him. The more that you grow in the gospel, the more you start to understand how the gospel shapes every part of your life. That's not just like the gospel is the thing you believe and then go on living your own life. The gospel actually shapes your marriage and shapes your parenting and shapes how you work, that Thinking through the implications of what Christ did for you changes everything. And more and more, you want your life kind of like a cookie cutter to be in the shape of the character of Jesus and what he did for you. And as you grow in the gospel in in community, you also grow in the realization that what the gospel means is that God is awesome. That God is glorious. To have done such a great thing as sending his son to die for his people That God is worthy of all of my life and worship. And everything should be done for him now. And isn't that how Peter ends? Verse 18, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Everything is about God's glory when you get the gospel. So this morning, I wonder if maybe some of you really need to hear this word. Because when you think about looking ahead... You're like, I know that's good, but I'm just so tired. I'm so stuck in the busyness of the humdrum of, humdrum of life, and it's hard to look forward. Maybe you need to look backwards to what Jesus did for you and ground yourself there to help you then look forward to what's to come. So is your life one where you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus so that you're not going to be knocked off course? Are you in the word regularly? Are you coming to community and saying, I'm feeling like I'm feeling some winds that are trying to knock me off course. Can you help me? Can you remind me of God's grace so I can stand firm? We need that. Friends, the end is coming. We don't know when. 
but we know that it is either going to be a day of judgment or a day of great salvation, depending on where you stand. For some of you, you've trusted in Christ and you're seeking to walk in him. So this morning, I hope that you're encouraged to keep running after him, to keep planting your roots deep, to be encouraged in the midst of maybe tiredness, to keep going. But some of you this morning maybe have not yet trusted in Christ. Maybe you're still skeptical. I don't know what your questions are. I'd be glad to chat with you about them. But I hope this morning you have heard that if there is a day of judgment coming, the Bible says there is, that the only hope is to run to Jesus. Now is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Trust in him now so you might live for him now in light of the hope that is to come. Because when the king comes back, it will be too late to change sides. It'll be too late to declare your allegiance to the king and say, oh, I was always on your side. It's too late when he comes back. Now's the time. Now's the day of salvation. So I pray that every one of us this morning would have our hearts as we look forward to what's to come, that our hearts would be trusting in Jesus, resting in him, rooting ourselves there, and running hard in a life of godliness for his glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that though we have all sinned against you and deserve only the judgment bit, you sent Jesus to take judgment to offer us the new heavens and new earth for all who would trust in him. So I pray that every person here this morning would trust in Jesus to be saved from the wrath to come. And I pray that for every person here, that as they trust in Jesus for that, that would shape them and make them the kind of person that lives a life that pleases you now because it's worth it. It's worth it in light of what is to come. So give us eyes to see ahead to the hope you have for us, to your great glory, for our good. Amen.